This week on Lectures in History, Emory University professors Hank Klibanoff and Brett Gadsden look at the intersection of civil rights politics and violence in mid-20th century Georgia. They talk about a number of unsolved murders during the segregation era and the Georgia Civil Rights Cold Cases Project. This class is about 90 minutes. Because today what we're going to do is I'm going to open up the Georgia Civil Rights Cold Cases, plural, class um, by taking note of a particular milestone that uh, occurs is occurring this week. Anybody know who this is? This is Emmett Till. This is Emmett Till. Now, on this day, August 26, 1955, that's 60 years ago today. So I'm going to ask you to sort of take your mind back. I'm sure none of you remember that, right? None of you remember what happened 60 years ago. But we're going to take a measure of how, how long ago that really was in a minute. Emmett Till was a 14-year-old boy from Chicago. He's spending his summer with his uncle down in Mississippi. His uncle was a farmer, and his uncle had a son who was Emmett's age. His uncle is Mose Wright. Moses' son, Mose Wright's son, uh, Simeon Wright, and they're all living together in, in, in the Wright house down in Money, Mississippi, having a good summertime. Two days before this day, 60 years ago, on August 24th, Emmett Till had gone into a local country store called Bryant's. Bryant's Meat and Grocery, I think it's called. And he was hanging out with a bunch of, with Simeon and with some other guys, and he goes into the store to purchase something. And he purchases it, and he's at the cash register, and there he sees the woman who owns the rest of the uh, grocery store with her husband, Carolyn Bryant. And something happens at that point. And there's only one person alive today who knows what happened. And that's Carolyn Bryant, okay? And he purchases something, and he then either whistles at her in a sassy sort of way, a wolf whistle that, you, you know, that construction workers and others are known to do when women walk by, okay? Or he, after he, as he's leaving, he's, he says something like, bye, baby. Or, if you listen to his mother, he starts to say something and he stutters. He had a stutter, she said, and, and he would blow air out in what sounded like a whistle. Whatever it, he did, it crossed the line. Certainly in the minds, not of only Carolyn Bryant, but her husband. A couple of days later, Roy Bryant and his brother-in-law, J.W. Milam, show up late at night at the door of Moses Wright's house and demand to see the boy that was in the store. And Mattel stirs, there all these boys are out there sharing a big bed, he comes out, Simeon Wright remembers, he goes, and Mattel's sort of half asleep, goes to the door, and Milam and Bryant grab him and take him out to the, a truck. And they can hear the Bryant and Milam say, is this the boy that did that? And a woman's voice says, yes, that's him. And they take him away. 
not to be seen again for several days. Okay? That was now on the 28th, so two days from now, 60 years ago. All right? They took him to J.W. Milam's barn where they tortured him, they beat him, and they shot him. And then they took him out to the Tallahatchie River where they strapped a cotton gin fan weighing 70 pounds, wrapped with barbed wire around his neck, and threw him in the water. And he's missing, and people are looking for him. Even before his body surfaces, the spotlight for some reason turns to Bryant and Milam. And they say, oh, well, we, yeah, we did that. We showed up, we took him, we just roughed him up a little bit, and then we let him out on the road. Whatever else happened, we had no hand in. Somebody else must have done. But then he surfaces. And what I'm about to show you is a very gruesome picture that at the time was only shown in the black press. It later made its way out to the larger. So the body was bloated beyond recognition. One eyeball was dangling from its socket. His tongue extended from his mouth, swollen to eight times its normal size. There was the bullet hole behind his left ear. And he was recognizable only by the ring that his mother had given him. And, and she had fitted it onto his finger. It was, had been his father's, Lewis Till's, and they knew it was him because it had LT on it. So this is a civil rights cold case, it, unresolved, unpunished, as is the case with many of these. There are still elements, poss possibilities of prosecution on small elements of it. Um, Ultimately, this is the Chicago Defender, the black newspaper, that um, he was a local kid to them. They're following a big local story. And this is only part of the front page, but the entire front page, if I recall, was devoted to this. Okay, But it wasn't just the black press that was interested. He became a national story. This is the Chicago Daily Tribune, and you can see a, a column here, to go on trial and south for murder at the top there to the left of that cartoon. The Chicago Daily News, Till case goes to jury for verdict. This is what happened as it finally went to trial. A mere three weeks after his body was found, it goes to trial. Now, you know, it seems like forever between a, an arrest and when somebody might go for, to trial. So Milam and Bryant are tried, okay, in a courthouse in Sumner, Mississippi. And if you ever come back with this kind of a detail in a piece, we're going to love you, okay? Guess what the slogan of the town of Sumner was? You won't guess, I'll tell you, I'm sorry, that's a mean <laughs> trick. Nobody knows? No, okay. A great place to raise a boy. Totally ironic. And a detail that as you as writers ought not miss when you come across something like that, okay? Um, it may not be a surprise to you um, that they were the two white men, Milam and Bryant, were acquitted. The jury was out 67 minutes. In fact, when they came back, they said, well, we wouldn't have been out that long except that we stopped to have a, a pop, a soda, a drink, you know. Um, it seemed a fairly 
slam dunk deal. The prosecution was actually pretty, did what many people believe to be a very effective job. The judge was a fair judge, um, and I won't go into all that now, but we can at some other time. The one thing that's interesting is that, that, that Milo and Bryant were not even convicted of the one thing that they admitted, which was abducting him. They acknowledged abducting him. But, uh, and it was a few months later, by the way, that Milam and Bryant and Carolyn Bryant sat with a journalist, William Bradford Huey from Alabama, Hartsville, Alabama, and told the story. And effect, in effect, confessed to the murder for a piece that ran in Look Magazine. But you can read the piece and never know they spoke to the reporter because he vowed not to reveal that they admitted it. He would have to write the story in some bizarre, contorted way that would tell the story of what happened without ever acknowledging. And he agreed that they could go out into the world and deny that they did it and that he wouldn't argue. And that later that fell apart. He just couldn't take it anymore, the writer William Bradford Huey, and he made sure everybody knew that they had confessed. And we actually, I have the, the copies of the documents of where he paid them money for the interviews. It was one of the earliest examples of checkbook journalism. Again, a journalism ethic. You take the journalism ethics course to go into that. Uh, Emmett Till was, of course, not a civil rights activist, right? He's 14 years old. Back then, he's seven years from being able to vote, you know, or whatever the age was back then. So that wasn't the case. Um, he was killed for violating what scholars somewhat primly referred to, and we will in this class because we're prim, uh, racial etiquette, okay? He, vi he crossed the line, the social codes, by whatever he did or was believed to have done. And it's worth noting that as much attention as this one got, there were two other murders in the weeks leading up to it in Mississippi of a man named George, Reverend George W. Lee and Lamar Smith, different parts of the state of Mississippi, and they had been actively involved in voter registration, trying to get blacks to the polls, and had been warned not to do it, and they did it anyway. So this semester, we're going to explore a case that's actually more similar to George W. Lee and Lamar Smith. That's going to be the 1948 murder of Isaiah Nixon in the town of Alston, A-L-S-T-O-N, Montgomery County. It's about three hours from here. Um, he was shot dead for voting. And he voted in, the 19, in 1948, and I'm going to come back to this in a little bit and talk to you about the extraordinary period of time in Georgia history between 1946, actually more broadly, 1944 and 1948, the highlights of which were two statewide races for governor within two years of each other, one in 1946 and one in 1948. Uh, two and possibly three black men were killed for voting in that time that we know of. Now, why... Just, I want to open the floor for a second. Why would white people go to such lengths to stop black people from voting? What, 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 what do you think would so trouble white people back then or any time that they would murder someone for voting? Yes, sir. 
I mean, at that point, uh, politics was a way to actually voice one's uh, opinions, and it actually was power. So there was a specific power structure in the South, and black people voting would most likely upset that. So that wouldn't be a thing that they right. wanted. Right. Yes, absolutely. Ellie? Yes. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, um, you know, at the time, politics, all, you know, sheriffs, councilmen, mayors, they're all white men, and if you have black men voting, it... You know, of course, there might be a change to that, and you know they couldn't let that happen. They couldn't give up the power of being in control, making all the decisions, not having to be accountable. Because who's going to go after white men killing people if all of their friends are in politics and everyone's going to side with them? And what? Right. Right. Absolutely. Yes, Megan. Also, if you have the right to vote, you also the politicians have to cater to your needs because they are part of getting you elected. So I think that's a big part of it, too. And by that, you mean that white people would white never people. want to cater to a black person's no. name? Yes, exactly. Yes. I'd say um, it's a legal uh, equalizer, and it, it was one of the only things at the time that could equalize what was going on right. in society. It's worth knowing, that, and, I, and you, you, you may know this intuitively, but the details of it are what make it so extraordinary, is what, what life was like then. What segregation was like. It was absolute, okay, in the 1940s, okay? And we're talking about before, and some people would say it was even a little more liberal atmosphere in the 40s and leading up to the Brown versus Board decision by the Supreme Court, that that really hardened people even more. But in the 1940s, even your liberals never believed for a minute that segregation would end. You've got, I can name four liberal editors, prominent people who worked, later worked in the Roosevelt administration, Ralph McGill right here at the Atlanta Constitution, Hodding Carter, others, who's, uh, Jonathan Daniels, who was an editor in Raleigh, North Carolina, who said, absolutely, segregation will never end in the South. You might as well believe that day is going to become night and night's going to be become day. All the armies of the world Axis and Allied combined, said Mark Etheridge, a liberal editor who had been in Macon and then later went to work for the Roosevelt administration, will never bring an end to segregation. So it was that absolute. So when we say that white people didn't want black people to vote, it was just one piece of, of all the absolutes that were, that were going to be banned and that blacks were going to be barred from. But let's get to the real technical detail. You could say, well, we, they didn't want them to vote because they might elect a black person. Now, keep in mind, what do you think? Why do you think a, a, a group of blacks in, in these counties, rural counties that we're talking about, could ever elect a black person back in the 40s Absolutely. if they could vote? No? No. Why not? Because I don't think that they had um, the structure there to to get someone into office, right, to run for a political office and then to win political office is a hugely expensive, time-consuming um, endeavor, right? And I think these people were in such a situation where they're more concerned with their day-to-day -day livelihood with getting food on the table than they are about, you know, putting someone into a system that has never, um, in their experience, been beneficial for them. Uh, that is all true, Okay. But I would remind you that white people down there were very, very poor, too. And white people were struggling day to day, okay? And here's what 
I want you to keep in mind is that in rural Georgia, rural Alabama, rural Mississippi, the population was heavily African American. You can go into some counties and it would be 70% African American. And maybe voting age would be 60%. And you'd look at the voting rolls and seven people, blacks, would be registered. Maybe a hundred, you know, in a, in a really aggressive county. So my point is that the structure, uh, not just of their lives, but, but the structure that barred them from voting at all was because whites feared that they were they would they would be the minority. Whites were the minority, and that it would that majority rule. They'd lose power. I want somebody else to quickly name one other important reason why the vote matters. What happens when you register to vote? We stumped him again, year after year after year. What happens? How many of you are registered? What do you get in the mail every now and then? You get a call from your folks back home. Jury duty. Jury duty. And what does jury duty, what does that mean? That you can sit on a jury and you can make this decision that these... um, You have an influence on the criminal justice system, right? A widely overlooked consequence that white people clearly understood, okay? And, we, and as we go through these civil rights cold cases, so many of these are about criminal justice and whether people got you know, justifiable verdicts given the fact that all white juries were looking into them. All right. Uh, now, normally, just so you know, I would not start off with Emmett Till. He's Mississippi, not Georgia. We're focused on Georgia. But I wanted to do it for, because of the anniversary, and I want to do it for another reason. Let me ask you a question. Could, could, this gets really personal. Somebody tell me how old their grandfather is. Somebody give me, tell me how, how old your grandfather? 88. 88. Somebody else? Like 92. 92? Anybody? Yeah. 70. 70? Uh-huh. All right. You can do the math quickly. How old would Emmett Till be? Oh, I can't do the math quickly. <laughs> <laughs> 60 years ago, and he was 14. He'd be a 74-year-old man. That's not... 60 years ago when he was murdered is not that long ago. I can name one person in this room who was alive (laughs) at that time. Okay? So I just want you to know we're, we're closer in time than you might think. Yes, Emily. What was the influence of him being from Chicago? Is, is that why it was received... Um, published in the newspapers more? Yes, that is why the Chicago papers went down there. And also the fact that he was a mere 14 years old and seemed to have crossed a line that didn't make sense outside the South, for the most part, uh, drew massive press coverage. Okay, Uh, This little town of Sumner, Mississippi, was just overrun by reporters. The New York Times covered it every day. Associated Press, UPI, the only newspapers that didn't cover it every day or the Mississippi newspaper. Okay. Okay. Um, now, just to go a little further here, uh, as we go forward in these cases, we're going to be examining, as as I think we've discussed a little bit, not the who done it as much as the why. In most cases, we know who done it. Uh, what conditions? What forces? 
what states of mind were in place, social, political, economic. What, you know, what, what, what forces would come together, override all sense of common decency, all religious precepts, all acceptable behaviors and lead men to resort to such horrific violence and widespread murder as a means of control, to your point earlier. Okay. Uh, this is the uh, website that I've asked you uh, to look at, you know, the Civil Rights Cold Case Project. Um, okay, this did begin as a joint journalism and, and African-American studies class. It's expanded to include history and American studies, cross-listed in all of those programs. Uh, and as I said, we've had quite a few students work in the summers. We've had students do independent studies after taking the class. And we've had students do senior honors theses uh, that are related. Um, okay. And we're examining, as I said, the history of the time of racially driven behavior and not just the murder of activists, as you can see. It's racially motivated murders, okay? Um, you're going to be using primary evidence, FBI records. We're going to give you a big stack of them, okay, just to prime the pump. Uh, we want you to dig out NAACP records, personal archives. You know, we discovered a mother load of stuff over at the Auburn Avenue Research Library. Marble upstairs, manuscript archives and rare book library is, is a real gold mine of opportunity. Um, and we want you to come to understand history that is, it's little known from the inside looking out. And it's long forgotten from the outside looking in. And that is our goal for you to see it from that new, fresh perspective. Uh, you'll, these, this is a whole bunch of different cases. Clarence Pickett, Maybell Mahone, A.C. Hall, people who were targeted for their, just because of who they were. It wasn't even always their beliefs, okay? In most cases, these murders prompted no local investigations or state investigations or prosecutions or received inconsistent investigation by the FBI. As you will see, you need to be open, however, we'll show you, to all historical realities and possibilities. And things are not always what they seem or what you would expect, okay? I'm going to click through and show you a couple of cases. This is James Brazier. James Brazier is, um, was 31 years old in 1958. He was... Uh, father of four children, a husband who worked three jobs, including at the Chevrolet dealership, and his wife worked two. And James Brazier, there's something he just loved, more than his, not more than his family, but he loved with a great passion, and that is new cars. And in 56, he bought himself a new 56 Chevrolet from the dealership where he worked. In 58, he bought himself a Chevrolet Impala, okay? We, are, we have examined in this class why it was that that was so offensive to whites down in Dawson, Georgia, not Dawson County, Dawson, Georgia, Terrell County, okay? Um, a few months before he, this particular day when he, he was arrested in April of 58 for who knows, it didn't matter, right? Minor and beaten up on his lawn by the police, taken to the jail where he was examined by a doctor who said he's going to be okay, and he wasn't. And then in the middle of the night, he's dragged out and beaten 
all but dead and within a few days dies, okay? But five months or four months before that day, he had been stopped by a police officer. He, and he said to the police officer, why are you stopping me again? What, what's going on? Why do you keep doing this? And the police officer says, you got a lot of nerve driving a car like that when we can't hardly live. I'll get you yet. And by the way, we, we know all of this because we have the paper. We have the, the records. We have all, you know, that, in which that whole dialogue took place. Um, and by the way, James Brazier, unlike Emmett Till, no news coverage, not a word. A month later, the same, one of the same police officers and another one from the same police force kill another man, Willie Countryman, um, who they found later with a knife under him that his family says he had never had. It was never his knife. It was planted. And they kill Willie Countryman in the middle of the night. Um, also, no, no coverage of that. This uh, was is, is Hattie Brazier, uh, James Brazier's wife. I mentioned she was a very hard-working woman. She spent five years trying to get his case to a federal jury and finally succeeded with the consequence was that the jury, uh, in a civil case, did not decide not to hold the police officers responsible for James Brazier's death. But it produced a large transcript. So this is the transcript that one of our students found. That's actually just a portion of the transcript that one of our students found at the National Archives. It really enlightened us, you know. Um, okay. This is Maceo Snipes. Very much like Lamar Smith, George W. Lee, Isaiah Nixon, killed for voting. Killed in Butler in 19, Georgia in 1946. It's two years before Isaiah Nixon because he voted. Now, here's the kind of detail that's interesting. There's so many things that are interesting. But when you're studying these things, you want to sort of glom onto these interesting moments. The family says that after he was shot and he had to walk three miles to a white landowner's place to get a ride to the hospital. He gets to the hospital, the doctor examines him, and says, well, my gosh, he's going to need, he's going to need a blood transfusion. The family tells us this. And, they say, and they, the family says, well, good, get, let's give him a transfusion. And the doctor says, oh, I can't do that. They said, well, why not? Now, the doctor, you understand, it was white. This was the time when just about all doctors were. And the doctor says, well, we can't. We don't have any black blood today. You've heard me talk about the black, but the, the mythology that people operated under about African-Americans at the time. They, it was, they, they adopted a lot of myths that were hard for people to break, even if they had wanted to. Um, by the way, the murder of Maceo Snipes really deeply upset a young college student at the time, college student at Morehouse College who was provoked by the incident to write a letter to the Atlanta Constitution. Do you see it over here? Can you see who wrote this letter? On the far right, the middle? Who does it say? M.L. King, Martin Luther King. Okay. This happened just weeks and within a couple of weeks of another murder in Georgia, a mass murder of four people at Moore's Ford which we can talk about also some other time. But. All right, going to click on through here. This is a story about Clarence Pickett. He was a man who in Columbus, Georgia, 
maybe he was a little bit off, frankly. He had spent six months at the, at the state mental hospital in Milledgeville. He returns to Columbus. He'd, know, he'd be known to wander around. He'd be known to drink a little bit, maybe a little bit too much. And some, some police officers sort of took him as and I, the village idiot, and some people, and some were deeply offended by him, okay? But he gets arrested on one particular day in 1957 around Christmas, and he gets thrown in jail, and he goes off. He's in jail, can't break out, and he's yelling and screaming, you know, calling the police officers' names, and most of the police officers just say, oh, that's, that's picket, you know, that's preacher, they called him. But one police officer decided not to take it. And he goes in the jail cell, and he kicks him, and he beats him, and he stomps him to near death, okay? And he has to be taken to, the, to a Columbus Medical Center where a white physician sees him. And I'm going to show you what the white physician, he examines him. There's a police officer in the room at the time, and the police officer says to the doctor, well, what do you think? And the doctor says... I think he's putting on. Okay? The next day, Clarence Pickett was dead. And so what our students were able to do was look at the doctor's medical report from one day and look at the autopsy the next day, and, and we sat with a pathologist from Emory University Midtown Hospital who said, well, gosh, based on this autopsy and what we know, here's what the doctor the day before should have seen and should have done, and he should never have released him to go home, which he did. And by the way, the doctor who said he was putting on when he released Clarence Pickett, he gave him a 75 milligrams of Demerol, an analgesic, a painkiller. So clearly there's, a, there's, there's some, some problem here. If he's telling the police officer, I think he's putting on, either afraid for whatever reason or just wants to be part of the boys and the team and then gives him a painkiller on the way out, whatever it is, Clarence Pickett died the next day. Um, I want to say something else about how we learn to think counterintuitively here. I told you before, you need to be aware not to jump to some assumptions about things, okay? Uh, one student we had, a very good student, was determined to portray the police officer who beat and stomped Clarence Pickett as this southern racist cracker. Right? White cop. Stereotypical, straight out of central casting. Well, another student was looking into it, too, and discovered something. This is the... Joseph Cameron was the police officer. What does that, what does that say? Where was he from? He's from New York. So we traced him enough to know that he came south only in, you know, to, when he was in the military to be at Fort Benning. Okay? So I say this to you by, as a means of saying, you know, we want you to challenge some assumptions that you may have going into these things, okay? A um, couple more. Lemuel Penn. Let me just tell you, in 1964, Lemuel Penn was a, was a high-ranking administrator in the Washington, D.C. school system. And he and two other African-Americans comes out to go to Fort Benning for Army Reserve training in the summer of 1964, a really important summer of 64. And civil rights, it's the summer of, it's the summer of freedom summer over in Mississippi. 
the three civil rights workers are found de- are, are missing in Neshoba County, Mississippi, Schwerner, Goodman, Cheney, so on and so forth. Uh, they finish up with their military service down at Fort Benning, and they're driving back home to Washington to be with their families. Little do they know, as they get near Athens, that they are going to cross paths with a group of three Klansmen just looking for trouble. Uh, Lemuel Penn and his buddies, there's another one's driving, they, they stop, they get out, Lemuel Penn takes the wheel, and within minutes, the Klan car is pulled up, somebody's pulled out a shotgun and blown him away, killed him, okay, in 1964. Um, I, th- there are two very, very gruesome pictures that I have that show... Lemuel Penn that I wouldn't dare show you uh, but I'm just telling you it was just breathtaking how brutal this murder was okay um, I think it's um, I want to show I want to give you a, a, a detail that we learned and y'all may find you know this is such a small detail but again it's the thing that's helped you to understand what things were like at the time um, and I, this comes from student research and from some reading we've done, and I, it helps you understand the frame of mind of people in 1947, 57, 64. There was a trial. The three Klansmen were caught, they were indicted, and they were tried, okay? And during the, in state court, okay, not federal, state, and we'll later go into a lot of these distinctions. During the trial, Two of the witnesses against the Klansmen were the other two men who were in the car, okay, with Lemuel Penn. And two African-American men who walk in to the courtroom to testify in their military uniforms. One was a major, and he had the stripes to show it. The other was a corporal, and he too had the stripes. And suddenly... The, the press that was there took note of the fact that when they came into the courtroom, the white jurors, all men, all white, took, just suddenly had these expressions of disdain for these black men who had higher ranking than they did when they were in the military. They were, you know, uh, privates, many of them. And, and it, it ended up Maybe it was going to be influential, maybe it wasn't. But it's a moment worth understanding that the psyche at the time was that no black man should be in a military uniform fighting for this country. Okay? And this is, what, 64, 16 years after Truman, Truman's order, something like that, you know, desegregating the military. All right, and by the way, the, the, the lawyer for the defendants, the Klansman, was very adamant in his arguments that the white jury would be letting down their race were they to convict these men, okay? He really appealed to their Anglo-Saxon tradition in there, so, um, and that they would have to answer to their neighbors. And, of course, they did find the men not guilty. Okay, a um, couple more. This is a young man who was 17 years old in 1962 when he's walking home from a dance, A.C. Hall and his girlfriend, I think, a girl, is eight, she was 15. They've gone to a dance, Eloise Franklin, they're, they, they're walking past a school. They don't, have, they don't know that some hour earlier a white woman has called the police 
and said, I just saw a black man in my, near, in my carport reaching into my glove compartment and, and, I, and now our gun is missing that they kept in the glove compartment of their car. And so the police go, they pick her up and her husband, they get in the car and they go out looking for people. They see A.C. Hall walking with his girlfriend and the woman says, that's him. And they really the only thing similar was that he had on a white shirt and the guy she had seen was wearing a white shirt. And the police come after him and he starts to run. Does this sound similar to anything you've heard recently? A.C. Hall starts to run and they start to shoot. And the police shoot him. And when they finally get up to him, he's all but dead. And he's trying to get up. He's trying to right himself. And he lifts his hands up like this and surrender and then falls over dead. And he doesn't, they, they looked for a gun. They didn't find a gun. Two days later, they come in, they say, we found the gun into what's um, the, a coroner's jury, it's called, uh, at an inquest. And they have a gun. And, you know, the, somebody in the coroner's jury then calls in the man and the wife whose gun was stolen and said, is this your gun? And they said, no. That's not our gun. Okay. So the, this white coroner's jury, which doesn't have the, the, which only has the power to recommend whether or not a grand jury should then bring criminal charges, okay? They hand out, they do a complete statement that says, we believe this was murder. Okay. But so a group of white people meeting, examining the evidence, conclude that it was murder. And it gets taken up by a grand jury. And the grand jury wouldn't bring any charges against the police officers. Okay? So, as you can see, you have a lot of unrestrained agents of white supremacy acting here to enforce what they believe to be the social order of things. And they brought just un injury and death to untold numbers of African Americans in Georgia and in the South, okay? Um, we're going to ask you during this time, as I said, to, to ask the questions about the why. Why would police officers be so offended that a black man owned a nicer car than they could afford that they would kill him? Why would white physicians examining black patients so readily ignore the signs of grave injury, withhold treatment, and send patients home to die. So the purpose of the course is clear. We want you to, look, to learn how to locate, how to dig out records, how to analyze the documentation of these crimes, find the truth, and find the context. Beyond the primary evidence that we're going to give you the, and that you're going to dig out, we have a lot of secondary reading, okay? Because there are others who have examined some of these issues more broadly. So that when, when a student was looking at why, you know, why would a man be killed for, driving, for owning a nice car, okay? Why would James Brazier be killed? Uh, Leon Litwack over in Trouble in Mind has two or three other examples of time. So some of these, you know, scholars have done the, the work that sort of is the glue of our work and, and helps expand our understanding. How, and that our understanding, these were not isolated one-off incidents, okay? Um, 
So that's the kind of work that we're going to be engaged in. Brett, as Professor Gadsden now is going to discuss a broader context in which we're going to understand the cases, and then we're going to come back to me for a little bit, talking about Georgia and to close out. Okay? And if you had, did you have questions at this point? I should have, let me just ask that about what I've just talked about. And you probably must have had things going through your mind at the time. You feel free to raise your hand. Yes, please. Uh, the specific name, but uh, I believe you mentioned uh, one of the officers or one of the people that killed someone was from New York mm -hmm. instead of the South. Mm -hmm. uh, wouldn't that also, wouldn't that change? I don't think that would change much because they did consider the South like up South in like a way that the South was, I mean, the North was more like, I guess, it kind of concealed its more racism more than the South did. So mm -hmm. I think that mentality wouldn't really change as far as like where he was from because right. it's kind of a general thing. Right. I, I, I think that I think that's right. Um, there's a question of what people knew at the time. And that's part of our challenge is not to apply what we know in 2015 to what they knew in 1964, 1947 or 48, you know. And whether that, you know, what were the understandings then? You do have a number of, of northerners who came south, and maybe they held those beliefs up, but up there, even there, but who came south and decided to fit in, they were going to have to adopt, this, you know, sort of southern ideologies on these things. Was it, did you have? Yes. Yeah, no, I was just going to say yeah. that same guy. Um, he was in the military, mm -hmm. right? So that's a whole other structure mm -hmm. right. of, of group thinking mm -hmm. um, and fitting in. And this ideology and this whole like brainwashing thing, because there's a lot of like the idea of being brainwashed in the military that plays into um, his thoughts and his actions in mm -hmm. that moment. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's right. Any other questions? Okay. Right. So, um, how do we think about racial violence in American history? I think that's one of the kind of underlying questions to this class, to this project. How violent is the United States or was the United States? Who were the victims? Who were the perpetuators? Um, and how did the justice system re result, respond to this, to this violence? And I think these are the, some of the things I think I'd like us to consider. Um, I think a good place to start when we think about the problem of violence uh, in, in American political development is with Gunnar Myrtle's uh, An American Dilemma. Now, Myrtle was a sociologist, a Swedish sociologist, who'd been um, uh, contracted by the Carnegie Foundation to write a kind of sociological study of American race relations in the late 1940s. And in 1944, he produced this kind of magisterial, epic study of American relations called An American Dilemma. And it, 1,083 pages. Yes, 1,080. It was, it's, 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 I think perhaps one of the finest study, comprehensive studies of American relationships ever, ever published. Um, and Myrtle worked with a, a kind of bevy of academics to, to study um, a variety of aspects of, of the South, including white attitudes towards blacks, the biological and social foundations of race. He published uh, population statistics and trends he explored the institution of slavery and the evolution of the planter, southern planter economy. He looked at the economic conditions and social stratification of African-American com communities. He explored white southern politics. He did detailed studies of the justice system, of police, of prisons and jails. He looked at 
the problem of violence in the South. Um, he explored the problem of segregation and equality, and he looked at a kind of variety of different institutions in the African-American communities, kind of uplift institutions, social protest institutions. He looked at the role of the black press and black churches. I mean, it really is something, I think, a study that deserves, um, that we return to again and again and again. Um, but I think in a, in a very provocative way, um, uh, um, Myrtle a offered a, a particular interpretation, right, of Southern culture, and I think by extension of uh, American political development. And he developed this argument that he called the American creed, right? And in Myrtle's telling, and this is a quote, uh, there's a strong unity in this nation and a basic homogeneity and stability in its valuations. Americans of all national origins, classes, regions, creeds, and colors have something in common, a social ethos, a political creed. Now Myrtle con continued, it is difficult to avoid the judgment that this, and what he calls American creed, is the cement in the structure of this great and disparate nation. Now the ideals contained within the creed included notions that ought to be familiar with us, right? If you've read our kind of founding documents, right? They include the dignity, the recognition of the dignity of the individual human being, the fundamental equality of all men, certain inalienable rights to freedom and, uh, freedom and justice and fair opportunity, right? And we, we can read these sentiments in the Declaration of Independence, in the U.S. Constitution, in various state constitutions. Myrtle recognized this a kind of recurrence of these themes in all these, these, um, in all these documents. Now, because Myrtle was kind of doing a study of American race relations, right, he did concede that there was a kind of tension between this creed, right, and the kind of everyday experiences of, of, of Americans. Still, he maintained, um, and this is another quote, that the ideals of the American creed have become the highest law in the land. And they were expressed repeatedly by national leaders, thinkers, jurists, and statesmen. And it was, it was Myrtle's opinion that the American creed had really triumphed, right, as a kind of guiding ideology of American culture, American political culture of the time. Now, in Myrtle's assessment, again, because he's studying the South right now in American race relations, um, he kind of constructed racism as a kind of contradiction, right, to this creed, right? It was a kind of, uh, a, 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 it was a kind of problem to which otherwise good people succumbed, and it was a problem that demanded kind of moral redress in education. Myrtle was of the opinion that if, if Americans just kind of understood the kind of totality and complexity of of the, of, the, of the problems, of these kind of insults to American, the American creed, um, that, therein, he, that, that they would discover, very quickly discover a remedy for these problems of segregation, of inequality, of, um, and of violence. And I think in many ways Myrtle's telling of, of, of our kind of exploration of, of, you, of American political culture uh, provides the essential subtext, right, for how we even tell American history today, right? So if you pick up your average um, U.S. history textbook, right, from your high school or even university level, I think you'll see a kind of argument embedded in the text about American history as this kind of inexorable struggle towards greater levels of freedom and equality, right? Um, and I think you can see it, you can see kind of echoes of Myrtle's argument, right, 
in arguments about American exceptionalism, right? That somehow American is like different than the rest of the world and we're better, that Americans are kind of in, in, innately, inherently freedom-loving, democratic, you know, um, egalitarian. Um, and, uh, and so I think we need to recognize the kind of power of that, of that sentiment, right, in the past and in the present. Now, a number of Myrtle's contemporary, uh, cont uh, uh, contemporaries, um, his critics, offered a more sanguine uh, take on the notion of the American creed, right? And the notion that Americans, and particularly white Americans, uh, subscribed or had an abiding commitment to these uh, notions of freedom, equality, and democracy, right? They noted that uh, Myrtle demonstrated great skill at celebrating American democracy, even as he detailed uh, the great breadth and scope of America's brand of racial apartheid. But they charged that Myrtle in many ways under, underestimated the depths of racism that existed among all classes of, of, of whites, like among the upper class and um, working class whites. And that um, the Swedish sociologists treated racism, racists, and racist acts as kind of vestiges, right, of a bygone era marked by pre-rational, pre-democratic, pre-scientific modes of thought. In other words, he kind of rendered these kind of problems of segregation, discrimination, and violence and stuff as something kind of, um, uh, 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 something kind of removed from the kind of that essence of American um, uh, sentiment and something... Um, kind of not fitting with the, with the American creed. Um, African-American sociologist Oliver Karks in particular uh, chided Myrtle for kind of treating uh, racism as some kind of disembodied element of American co culture. So like there was American political culture here and then there was kind of racism over here. Um, and contended, and Cox contended on, instead that, that this, the problem of race and racism was kind of part and parcel of the, assist, of the system of American political and economic structure. And I think the debate that Myrtle had, I think, explicitly, implicitly, um, between, with his critics, I think, is a really, really interesting one that frames, I think, a lot of discussions about American history, right? Um, and, it, and it creates this, I think, interesting interpretive tension, right, when we think about uh, U.S., political and, and economic culture as kind of inherently democratic or something else, right? And I think it does a lot to kind of shape our, our perspectives, right, of, uh, of different events. And I, but I think this, the tension that Mer between Myrtle and his, and, his, um, and his critics, I think, is really interesting for the purposes of this class, right, where we're thinking about the specific problem of violence, right, and the extent to which it is something central and intrinsic to U.S. history, right? Is it something that's kind of out there, right, that these kind of people on the margins of society engage in, right, that otherwise, you know, or is it something that is kind of bound up and, and woven throughout, um, uh, you know, a, a variety, a myriad of different kind of American traditions and practices, right? Is it embedded in the kind of, um, actions of different institutions. And I think that's a really, really interesting way, a, a really interesting problem um, for us to, to ponder over. Um, I think when we think about racial violence in history, I think it's important to, to think about it um, 
think about it as a kind of long arc and think about it in its various kind of iterations, right? Um, in many ways, we can look to the institution of slavery and see um, the, 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 the kind of practice of, of violence as, as kind of inherent and essential to the, to the institutionalization of chattel slavery in the American South, right? Slave owners went to great lengths, right, to convince themselves and others that the institution of slavery was a kind of benevolent arrangement between masters and slaves, right? That they were the ones who provide, that the masters provided uh, a kind of shelter and food and civilization and religion for their slaves in exchange for labor and obedience and love, right? But we understand, I mean, just a, a, I mean, a cursory review of American slavery um, reveals that that violence was, was an essential component of the master-slave relationship, right? That, corporal, that masters frequently resorted to corporal punishment to discipline their slaves, right? And to kind of maintain the essential imbalance between masters and slaves. Masters frequently whipped their slaves. I'm sure we've seen the kind of iconic photograph of the gentleman with the kind of cross-hatched scars in his back that, where he'd been whipped kind of repeatedly. Um, uh, you know, slaves were whipped and beaten for disobedience um, when they failed to meet their kind of cotton or tobacco quotas. Um, they, were, uh, they were subject to corporal punishment when they attempted to run away um, or, or when they broke a kind of myriad rules that governed plantation life. And oftentimes, um, it wasn't always clear that, that there was a logic to the violence that was meted out, that sometimes it was kind of unexpected and unanticipated. And so there was this, that, that slaves lived in, a, I think, constant, um, um, in, a, in, a, in a state of vulnerability, right, to the master's, to the master's whims. Um, slave women were often subject to forms of, to rape and other forms of sexual exploitation um, for masters, master's sons, and other, and, and the male uh, the male relatives, overseers, and other visitors, right? Um, and I think what's striking about um, violence in the slave South was the fact that all violence short of murder or, a serious, or, or, or serious maiming of a slave was considered legal, right? That the state regarded that this was the kind of purview of masters and, and as long as they didn't kill their property, that was fine. But even in cases where, where masters were found, um, t were determined to have um, killed their slaves or maimed them, they were rarely charged with murder. They were rarely charged and rarely prosecuted for their actions. I think violence, I think it's interesting to think about violence as a defining feature of, post, of the post-emancipation um, South also. In this way, we can see a kind of continuation of that world that... Um, uh, originated in the in the um, in the in the slave South. New constitutional amendments established rights for citizen citizens' rights for African Americans, and and African Americans gained degrees of freedom and independence unimaginable in the slave South. And that's not to be underestimated. I mean, we don't. You know, it doesn't. You know, there's. Um, we have to think about different gradations of freedom. But I think that the fact that that emancipation mattered. Right? It didn't result necessarily in equality of the races, but it was a profound change from the previous regime. And that created a great deal of anxiety among, um, among whites right? for, on a, for, a, for a variety of different reasons. 
And it's in, in this context that we can see the rise of institutions like the Ku Klux Klan, right? That use violence and threats against free people to reassert, right, the political, economic, and cultural superiority of, of white Southerners that had been kind of seriously undermined with emancipation. Um, the Ku Klux Klan um, organized lynch mobs and, 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 and portrayed themselves really as kind of protecting the weak and punishing criminals for their immoral behavior. And they often resorted to violence and intimidation to protect white Southerners from competition from newly Free, from the newly freed people, right? The Klan was renowned for their night rides in which they would take people from their homes, and many victims were killed execution style for shooting. Uh, by shooting or hanging, they were raped and whipped or otherwise humiliated. Um, and I think in these ways, we can see the violence, right, as a, a, a continuation of patterns and of traditions of racial of, of uh, patterns and traditions of racial domination that were endemic to racial culture. But I think it's also important to think about violence as in, in this kind of interesting tension between other tools of domination, right? And it's a question that we discussed yesterday um, that that. Um, that white Southerners didn't necessarily turn to violence when all other methods of domination failed, right? But that violence was a kind of tool in a large toolbox, right? Um, of, of that, that provided them the means to exert their power and authority that they lost in the war, right? And that we can see that kind of play, that the, those kind of actions being played out played and replayed out in different variations, right, throughout the late 19th and 20th century. Now, lynching is arguably the most conspicuous form of racial uh, violence in the, in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, what do you all know about lynching? I mean, it's, it's kind of difficult to avoid if you know anything about U.S. history. Nobody knows anything about lynching. Yes, Megan. Uh, it was almost kind of a show. Okay. People would come and get bring their families to watch a lynching. Um, yeah. During different periods, I guess. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Ellen. Um, lynching could get out of hand really quickly. Sometimes it was just like mob violence or anger, and it wasn't directed towards a specific individual, but just whoever could be found on the streets could get caught up in sort of like this anger and this general like like in towns, it could just be like sort of an anger of like. What are we doing? We're losing power. Things are getting out of control. Society is changing, and we don't like that. Yeah, 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 yes. Uh, it was also seen as somewhat of like a religious spectacle. Um, a lot of people just see, saw it as uh, a church goer would see a sacrifice or something like that. It was something that they believed in that they were actually showing or offering to the people. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of it has elements of all that. I mean, for for our purposes, I think. It's important to kind of define lynching as a, as a killing perpetuated by a group of persons working outside the law to avenge a crime, real or imagined, uh, right, to impose a kind of social order, right? And so the origins of the term lynch, lynch um, come from uh, the American the Revolution, right, with Colonel Charles Lynch of Virginia, who instituted this extra legal court that sentenced Tories to flogging. And this, the kind of practice of lynchings evolved over the 19th century. 
And um, initially, we're most associated with the West, right? With the frontier, mm -hmm. right? With and whites and Mexicans and Native Americans were primarily the victims, right? But once we get into uh, um, um, but, uh, Civil War and Reconstruction, we see the practice of, of, of lynching becoming increasingly a Southern phenomenon and, and, and increasingly an exercise perpetuated against African Americans by whites. Um, and, it wore, and it involved various kinds of, of beatings, uh, um, um, different forms of torture. Um, but I think what's important and essential to understand is the extent to which it, it was this public ritual, right? It was, it, was this, it was oftentimes carried out, you know, in town squares, right? That, um, that it was advertised, right? Um, that that lynchings were performed with the knowledge and understanding and permission of authorities, even if, even if the police weren't actively participating, they stood by, they allowed uh, victims to be re oftentimes removed from jails to be taken for the, from, from the mob. And this institution of lynching really evolves kind of hand in hand with the segregation and disenfranchisement of African Americans after the Civil War. Right? It's another kind of tool in the toolbox that white Southerners used to politically and economically disenfranchise African Americans. Now, between 1882 and 1950, we don't have exact figures of how many people uh, were lynched, but it's estimated that uh, roughly 6,000 Americans died at the hands of lynch mobs, um, with Mississippi, Georgia, and Texas leading the way. Of those who were lynched, Roughly one-third were suspected of rape or attempted rape. Um, the next popular category was uh, murder or attempted murder. Um, but African Americans were lynched for a variety of other transgressions, in including arson, burglary, assault, uh, petty theft, vagrancy, or theft. Right? Um, so there's this problem of, that's of uh, lynching and crimes, like perceived or imagined. But I think actually the study of the work of Ida B. Wells, a famous African-American uh, activist, reveals, I think, something really interesting about the, the practice of lynching, right? That it wasn't just, African-Americans didn't just suffer lynching for perceived wrongs, but they also often suffered lynchings when they, when they succeeded, right? When they demonstrated economic success, when they, when they demonstrated political independence, right, they often aroused the great consternation and antagonism of local whites who descended upon them and took their lives. Um, there is a great, um, a, a, a terribly important incident of lynching that occurred in 1899, um, right up, right down the street, or down I-85 in Noonan, Georgia, uh, where a man named Sam Hose, a black farmer, uh, was accused of murdering his white employer and raping his wife. Now, again, I think the important problem here is, is accused of, right? I think that's the problem, you know, there's the, that many of these victims were never accused or never found guilty of a crime. Um, but even if they had found guilty of a crime, there was a particularly kind of extra legal element of this where the, where the state abdicated its responsibility towards um, 
um, disciplining and holding to account um, uh, uh, actual criminals. But the, the interesting thing, I think, about and the historically significant thing about Sam Hose's lynching was the, uh, was the kind of public spectacle of it all. Thousands of people turned out to witness his lynching. Excursion trains were organized to bring people from Atlanta out to Noonan, Georgia, right? And Hose was um, tortured and mutilated before he was eventually burned to death. And his body parts were then distributed and sold afterwards. Local photographers snapped and distributed pictures of the violence. And with many lynchings, right, there actually developed a considerable market in lynching um, postcards. And there's this great exhibition on lynchings that if you have the opp opportunity to see on lynching postcards, if you have the opportunity to see it, it is, it is, um, it is um, uh, really, really moving. Now, the composition of lynch mobs was often difficult to discern, um, but researchers believe that the participants hailed from across the social spectrum. They were rich folks, they were poor folks, um, uh, they were civic leaders, they were church leaders, they were jurists, and they were white press. And there was, an ev there's, there's this really kind of interesting element of, of kind of mass complicity in the law. Like, so whether or not the... the um, you know, we, we tend to focus on the, the most immediate perpetuators of, of violence, those people who made the nooses and, and actually killed the people. But I think what's interesting and important about the lynching as a kind of public spectacle is the way in which it was this kind of mass, um, kind of popular effort, right? Uh, of violence against an individual and assertion of white supremacy in the face of, um, of, perceived black crimes or um, black assertions of political and economic authority. Um, there's another form of violence I think that's really important for us to, to remember when we think about uh, uh, um, Southern history. And, and you know, I'd like to just borrow from European and Russian history and think about the term the pogrom, right? So in Russian, the pogrom is, 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 a, is a term used, uh, it, to, to define uh, the wrecking of havoc. To, it, it's, it, its meaning is to wreck havoc or to, demon, to demon, demolish violently. And it typically refers to violent attacks by non-Jewish populations against Jewish populations in Russia and Europe. Well, in America, we had, our, we had variations of those. We, in the, the U.S. context, they're just called race riots, right? And in, in, in 1898, I'm sorry, in Wilmington, North, Car Wilmington, North Carolina, a mob of nearly 2,000 men attacked a black newspaper after it published um, a, a, what was perceived as an inflammatory article, kind of questioning the motion of the, the, the motives of lynch mobs. Um, right? And this is kind of against the backdrop of a really important election in which Democrats and Republicans were vying for political power in the city. Um, Two dozen African Americans were killed during the, or, or more than two dozen were killed, and many others were forced from town. And it's this, it's this kind of really important moment, I think, in Southern history, and one around which there's been great discussions in Wilmington, North Carolina, um, recently. And then there was also the Tulsa race riot in 1921, and there's been recent, some recent work on, on the lasting impact of, of this riot. In this case, a group of whites mounted a 16-hour attack on the Greenwood District, which was also then known as the Black Wall Street, right? And in this riot, 
it's estimated that between three dozen and 300 African Americans were killed. 35 blocks were razed, and over 1,000 residents were destroyed. Right, so this is, and there's there's amazing photographs of just kind of burned out structures as far as the eye can see. Um, with the rising tide of civil rights activism, uh, we can we were we can we can discern a kind of wave of anxiety throughout the White South and a kind of next chapter in the history of racial violence in America. African American soldiers returned from war, uh, intent on demanding their rights as citizens. The NACP and other organizations um, organized and, and began to mount really concerted challenges, right, to structures of segregation and inequality, and began to compile a record of successes, small but gradual successes. Um, uh, and they mobilized efforts to um, regain for African Americans the right to vote through voter registration campaigns. And to all of these things, all of these efforts, I think we can see, we can measure forms of white, um, uh, whites responded with various forms of violence. And those forms of violence come in a variety of different ways. Um, interpersonal violence was a, a kind of persistent quality, I think, of, of Southern um, society in the kind of um, mid 20th century. And um, for many, in, in many instances, African Americans for real or perceived violations of, the racial, of racial etiquette could be met by various forms of interpersonal, uh, uh, interpersonal violence. Um, and when we talk about racial etiquette, I think it's really important to consider, and we'll kind of tease this out a little bit more, but we have to imagine a time and a place in where in all contexts, African Americans were expected to act in a subservient manner to whites, right? To refer to them as, to refer as whites as Mr. or Ms., right? Never in their first name to take off their hats, to, um, to concede the sidewalk, right, to the white person who was walking in the opposite directions. And real perce or perceived violations of these rules were often met with beatings and kickings and other forms of kind of humiliation. Um, and I think we can see a bi the, the most kind of the, the emblematic example of that is, is, is Emmett Till, right? Is that he was perceived to have committed a kind of gross violation of, of racial etiquette in, in the U.S. South, which is, as a, a black man, is to make any kind of gesture, especially sexualized gesture, towards a white woman. And he paid for that violation with his life. There are many other um, examples of that. Um, we can see evidence of political assassinations in the South, right? The cases of George Lee and Lamar Smith, right, who attempted to organize uh, voter registration, to, to vote and to exercise the franchise is a, is a perfect examination. And I don't think it's, um, um, I don't think it's too much to, to use the term political assassinations. Um, Medgar Evers, the president of the Mississippi chapter, uh, Mississippi Conference of the NACP, was uh, assassinated by a sniper, right, for his civil rights active efforts in, in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, and Mar and the, the, the biggest example the, uh, is Martin Luther King Jr., right, who I think was a victim of a political assassination for his political activities. 
We can we can see episodes of racial terrorism in the South. I think. I mean, terrorism is a kind of really fraught and word. I think to be used. Um, in the political, in the contemporary context, right? But I don't think it's 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 a stretch to talk about terrorism, racial terrorism in the Jim Crow South, especially when we think about or we remember the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in 1968, right? I mean, the um, and the, the 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 large amount of dynamite that was placed in that church and detonated with the express purpose of killing and intimidating African Americans for a particular political end, which was to kind of undermine and subvert the growing momentum of the African American civil rights movement at that time. We there are numerous incidents of white mob violence, right, in the American in the Jim Crow South, right. Um, uh, in where demonstra- white demonstrators descended on African Americans. If anybody is familiar here with the stories of the Freedom Riders, right? When they pulled into those stations in um, Anniston, in Montgomery, that with the kind of tacit su- uh, uh, support of the police, whites descended on the buses on the station and and beat. Uh, and mercilessly beat the, um, these civil rights activists um, while the police literally stood by and allowed that to happen. We can see other we can see other incidents of that. And then there's the problem of police violence, which seems to factor very centrally in the in the in our uh, cold case project here. Right? Um, there was this terrible incident in 1946 that involved a gentleman named Isaac Woodard. Now. Woodard was a U.S. Army sergeant. He was on a bus. He was traveling through South Carolina, right outside of Aiken, South Carolina. And he had a kind of dispute with the bus driver. He wanted to use the restroom. The bus driver objected. And the bus driver later called the police. The police removed Woodard from the, from the bus and jailed him. During his period of incarceration, the police beat Woodward and blinded him. Literally, they kind of gouged his eyes out with a billy club, right? And this is a case that became uh, very, very important in thinking about the, um, in in moving uh, President Truman, right, to begin to support various civil rights measures. And so you think about, you know, especially this American soldier, right? Um, It it became... um, it was just a, a, an important moment and th- an emblematic moment, I think, in thinking about violence in the South. And then, of course, there's Eugene Bull Connor, right? And I think most of us know about him and these kind of iconic images, right, and footage of his police force and them unleashing dogs on nonviolent protesters and such. Um, and so I think, it, you know, for us, I, I'd like to kind of challenge us to think about the problem of violence and to, as we give context to the events surrounding the murder of Isaiah Nixon, right, is, is, to, is, to, is to think about the extent to which um, what happened to Nixon was an aberration, right? I mean, I think there's a way in which we might frame his murder as that, right, as the, as the kind of outcome of, of, of two deranged individuals' kind of crazy racism, Right? But I think it's actually more interesting and important to, to, for us to kind of work um, diligently to try to give 
context, right, to, to all of these incidents of, 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 of violence, right? And to think about, uh, and maybe kind of challenge Myrtle's thesis a little bit about these problems as these kind of aberrations to the American creed, right? That the problem of violence, not just, we can talk about racial violence, there's other forms of violence, are actually more central to our understanding of our collective history than we oftentimes are willing to admit. And then that there might be this kind of interesting problem of complicity, right? That it was certainly the case that two men, right, approached Isaiah Nixon and killed him, literally, right? But these men were part of a community, right? They were, and, they, and, and, and there were witnesses, right, literally and figuratively to their violent action, right? And these witnesses had the choice, they had, they had a, a kind of myriad choices, right, to hold these men to account or to let them go, right? And in the kind of community's decisions, right, about how to deal with the assailants of these, you know, of, of, of Isaiah Nixon, I think we can tell a, a really interesting story about not just Southern history, but U.S. history. And so I'd like to kind of leave you with those Final, that final challenge, because I think that is kind of, therein lies the great kind of possibility, I think, inherent in, in our work in this class. Good. And we'll just keep going, unless you have some questions, and we're going to push on here to the end. All right. That's all right. All right. Um, and we, we'll have time at the end, too, if you want to take ask some questions. It was, you know, I just started thinking, actually, as you were talking, I hadn't really put this together. Of course, we're looking at uh, Isaiah Nixon, 1948. Mm-hmm. Two years before was Maceo Snipes, 1946. And you really don't have to go past Atlanta. You don't have to go to Tulsa and Wilmington and look at the Atlanta race riot mm-hmm. of 1906. Mm-hmm. There are people... Of course, neither of those was killed in Atlanta, mm-hmm. but that race riot of 06 in Atlanta was completely, was very widely known, widely uh, understood. It, 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 uh, Atlanta had one of the, and still does, one of the most uh, significant upper middle class African American populations in the country, and it did even then. Uh, and they came under serious attack in the in the 1906 race riot. We're not going to go into that, but it just occurred to me that there would have been people very much alive in 1946 and 1948 who ha- might have lived through that Atlanta race riot and who would have remembered it. And it would have been sort of a, 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 a benchmark moment in their lives. Um, and there were other Atlanta, besides the Klan, there were in Georgia other Klan-like groups. There were the Black Shirts, uh, and they were, they, they were created in the 30s to threaten businesses uh, that had any thought about hiring blacks and they and particularly the cities they didn't want cities to hire blacks and uh, they used to walk around with signs that said city jobs are for white folks and they would enforce it brutally okay uh, there was a clan a group called the men of justice the supreme kingdom there was the Colombians. there was some georgia homegrown georgia groups that were pretty significant uh, perpetrators of violence um now, it's interesting because Brett said that we were talking yesterday, and we did have this t- conversation where we were sort of noodling through this idea that violence is not necessarily the last resort. When everything else has failed to keep the social order and white supremacy intact, if you can't, 
keep them from voting and you can't keep them from stand, you know, sitting in the schools and, you, you know, we're going to go to violence. That wasn't the case. Violence was often the first order of business. And, 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 and the, the longer range goal was, was built into, embedded in the laws and in the voting laws and in the political infrastructure. So you can't really, you know, sort of jump to, these, to any presumption that, well, nothing else has worked, let's just go beat them up and kill them, okay. Uh, and I want to talk about two things that become really important that I think will, if I don't know if they'll astonish you, but I think they'll surprise you about the way Georgia was built in one case and the way the South was built in the, in the other. I want to talk to you about the way politics and, and political decision-making, electoral politics, worked in Georgia, just briefly. We're going to come back to it, you know. And I'm indebted to uh, someone whose book I think we're going to di- we're, we'll dive into portions of, of uh, Patrick Novotny. He's, a, he's an instructor and professor down at Georgia Southern. He's written a book called This Georgia Rising. And he's looked into this in a pretty big, big way. Uh, and that's the Georgia County Unit System. Now, what could be more boring, right, than to say, oh, my God. Not to political yeah, scientists right. in this room. They right. should be and it was, jonesing for Right, this. that's right, exactly. <laughs> and, but it was unique to Georgia, okay? And I won't say no other state had it, but Georgia was best known going all the way uh, back to VOK, uh, understanding sort of what distinguished Georgia. It was the county unit system. And basically, it was a perversion though not everyone would agree with that. I didn't mean to give you a political statement there, but you'll see what I mean in a second. It was a perversion of the political structure that gave the rural parts of the states far more influence in electoral politics than the urban areas. Okay? And it went back to the 1700s in Georgia, but it really caught fire in the mid-1800s. Okay? This system where in the way the, both the legislature was, was uh, set up and, and, and the power was distributed, and in elections, in much way the electoral college, right? The electoral college, we all know in this country, the, popular, the person who wins the most votes, the popular vote, does not necessarily become president, right? It's whoever gets the most electoral votes. Well, Georgia had a similar situation called the county unit system, and I'm going to give you a, a, an uh, an, an idea of how that worked, but it was seen as a way of protecting the rural areas, you know, uh, and not letting the big city slickers run roughshod over the, you know, the, the county and the rural folks. Um, this is how it worked in the selection of the legislature. At the time, there were, uh, Georgia had 132 counties, which is a lot, okay? Today it has 159. And it has so many counties because that's where the power was. And people wanted their own county so they could have their own power, okay? But I'm just going to take you back to the mid-1800s, the 132 counties. This, and I wished I had my board here. I didn't, couldn't find the marker, but y'all can write down and see the math yourselves. The six largest counties in population had three seats each and the House of Representatives. So that's 18 seats held by the six largest counties. The 31 next largest had two each, okay? And the 95 other had one each. So the smallest had counties had 95 seats out of 132. 
The middle counties had 62 seats, and the largest counties had 18. Okay, so you can see how they created this intentional imbalance to keep power out of the, as I called them, the city slickers. So successful statewide politicians were those who not merely played to the rural interests in the populist period and beyond, uh, but those who targeted the city and the urban interests as anathema to the overall best interests of the state. So that's something we will look at more closely to, to understand why when you were running for governor in this state, really you could almost abandon the campaign in the cities and because if you could stack up enough rural counties, you won, okay? Um, then, that, that was unique to Georgia. What was not unique, but was pretty much just southwide, though, is what was known quite plainly as the all-white primary, okay? Now, the all-white primary existed in Georgia, South Carolina, Texas, and many states. And what it meant was that when the Democrats had their, elect, their primary to decide who their candidate would be in the general election, only white people could vote, okay? Now, blacks could vote in the general election, but not in the primary. Why is that significant in the 1930s, 40s? We're, we're focusing on the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Why is it significant that blacks could not vote in the, pri in the Democratic primary? What would be the simplest explanation? Were you, did he beat you to it? No, okay. no, he raised his hand. Yeah, right. <laughs> All you did was give me a little nod, yeah. like you were almost ready That's to go. Yes. Wouldn't it be that uh, the primary is usually the place where uh, you establish like a front runner or whatnot, so you're already putting up uh, representatives, re representatives uh, of that white, uh, I guess, belief, so you're really not doing much as far as like in the general of election or having too much choice there because you're already, it's already preordained type of thing of like the thought that right. they will have. So who was the dominant party? In the 40s, you're, you're absolutely right, and I'm going to sort of get put some more flesh on that bone, on those bones. Uh, who was the dominant party in the South in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s? Democrats. Political party, huh? Democrats. The Democrats. The Democrats were the, you know, they they were the party uh, of of the white people. Okay. Uh, are you familiar with who the party of, of African Americans might have been when they had the vote and the occasional times when they had the vote? Republican. Why? Why were African Americans through the 19 teen, you know, teens, 20s, 30s, even the late 1800s, more Republican? Kia. Was it Lincoln or a Republican? Lincoln was a Republican. The, they were the party of the Emancipation Proclamation. The African Americans were far more Republican, okay? And de and 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 it, but they were virtually so they were because African Americans did not participate and were not allowed to participate in the political system that much. What really mattered, as you've just heard, is what happened in the Democratic primary. Whoever won the Democratic primary won the election. They'd go through the pro, pro forma staging of, election, of a general election in November, but there'd be, you know, one person on the ballot, okay? So that's, that's, that's why that's important. But challenges to the system began mounting in the 1940s, and chief among them 
was a challenge that was mounted in this state by a man who, you know, maybe, maybe we'll even think we want to profile him this semester. I'm not sure. A man named Primus King, P-R-I-M-U-S. And you can read more about him later. But he was aided greatly in his challenge to the all-white primary. He was African-American, of course. By a man you'll see on our website when, we, you, know, when you get to it, Thomas Brewer, a physician in Columbus, an African-American. And you'll see th there. But he, he helped him file his lawsuit challenging uh, in federal court the Muscogee County, that's Columbus, Democratic Executive Committee. They're saying their failure to allow me to vote in the Democratic primary is a violation of my 14th and my 15th Amendment rights, equal protection and my voting rights. Voting. Uh, so, and the federal courts, by the way, two of them found in favor of Primus King on this in 1945 in 1946, do you see the period we're talking about? We're talking about the period leading up to the murders of Maceo Snipes and Isaiah Nixon, right? Okay. All right. Now, while this, his case was pending before the United States Supreme Court, Primus Kings, another case, a challenge from Texas, reaches the state Supreme Court, and they actually rule the U.S. Supreme Court, rules on the Texas case first. And what they said was... The state of Texas, the Democratic Party in the state of Texas cannot have an all-white primary because the Democratic Party is, by the Supreme Court's interpretation, an extension of state government. And state government cannot discriminate Okay, on that, right? Very, it's an interesting dynamic. So what did the state of Georgia do? They quickly passed a law that said the Democratic Party of Georgia is not a part of state government. It's an independent private party and it can do anything it wants, you know, as a private party. So that arrives at the United States Supreme Court as an altogether new wrinkle, okay? So the Supreme Court has to take this separate, this issue up separately, all right? On April 1st, it was no April Fool's joke. April 1st, 1946, just three months before the next Georgia Democratic primary, 1946, in which a, the, a leading candidate for governor was a man whose name you'll hear, Gene Talmadge. Gene Talmadge had been governor three times already, not, not in succession. He couldn't succeed himself. But three times already, he was a, you know, we, we, we sort of, uh, Professor Gass and I sort of caution you not to overuse the word racist, okay? Let's be a little more specific with what that means, you know? White supremacist sometimes means something a little bit different. I'm going to use the word out-and-out out racist with Eugene Talmadge, okay? And say, uh, and, but he'd been a populist at one point. He'd supported the New Deal. I mean, you know, he, but he would do anything to try to get elected. And he is trying to reclaim the governor's office in 1946, and he's on the ballot. And three months before that election, on April 1st, 1946, the United States Supreme Court ruled that Georgia's all-white primary was unconstitutional and said they cannot ban black people from voting in the Democratic primary. Now, you would say, ah, we, you know, we, we reached, we, we succeeded in, in breaking that down. Now we can all go vote. Georgia was not going to give up. And not only by the gun, okay, it, was, it spent the 1946 election, the, the days leading up to that, purging a lot of blacks, 
disenfranchising them further, not allowing them to register, creating all sorts of barriers. Um, and Eugene Talmadge gets elected governor in 1946, okay? Even as he's awaiting inauguration, and this gets pretty good here, okay? The FBI had been investigating the disenfranchisement of blacks for the 1946 election and had so many cases that they were considering indicting Eugene Talmadge, now as the governor-elect, and the state of Georgia for uh, disenfranchising blacks. Um, now, one man who did vote that day was Maceo Snipes, and he was the only man in Taylor County only black man in Taylor County to vote, and he was killed shortly thereafter. Gene Talmadge, by the way, as governor-elect, he escaped indictment. How did he do this? Hmm? No, sorry, you go first. Because <laughs> you'll never guess this one. He died, okay? Gene Talmadge died before he was able to take office, right? And it, it it unleashed this remarkable period in Georgia history where three men claimed to be governor at the same time. Okay? The sitting governor, who really by some standards back then had a very progressive reputation, Ellis Arnold, there's still a law firm with his name on it here, Ellis Arnold said, I'm the sitting governor, I'm just going to stay here. I'm going to hold on to this because we don't, because the governor-elect got beat. The Lieutenant Governor-elect, who was on Gene Talmadge's ballot with him and who gets elected Lieutenant Governor, he says, wait a second, I'm the next person. And by the way, this was the first election, 1946, in Georgia history, where there was actually a a Lieutenant Governor candidate. I mean, they had never had a Lieutenant Governor, okay? And so this was all new to them, right? So he says, and his name was was Thompson, uh, Melvin Thompson, he says, no, I'm the governor, you know, because the governor who was elected died, and I'm the lieutenant governor, so I'm it. Guess who the third one was? You'll not guess. I'm just going to tell you. Okay. Gene Talmadge's son, Herman Talmadge, well-known in this state as Herman, old Herman, Herman Talmadge, okay? And Herman Talmadge, here's how he got to claim to be governor. The Talmadge forces knew that Gene Talmadge was sick. They knew, they thought there was a possibility he wouldn't make it. And so they deployed X number of their people to go right in Herman Talmadge's name, okay, in the, Demo- in, the, in the general election. But at that point, there's no Republican on the ballot. There's only Gene Talmadge as their Democratic nominee. So who comes in second? Herman, right, with a small number of write-in ballots. So he claims it, right? Well, this creates a, a real, you know, crisis in, in Georgia. Um, and ultimately, the powers that be, all these parties negotiated, the, and they decided the only way to solve this is a do-over. Let's have another election in 1948, okay? And so it's the 1948 election that we'll be focusing on with Isaiah Nixon, okay? And... As we know, like Maceo Snipes, he too was killed for voting. Okay. So, closing out here. 
as you dig into this and this case and you say okay who was Isaiah Nixon and you think about what you know what you've read even in high school what you know and you and you and maybe you read Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison maybe you've read you know other literature whether fiction or non-fiction about sort of the um, the the subservient role that Professor Gadsden was mentioned that whites treated blacks with just sort of not knowing they were there and and understanding that when many of these men and most of them were men but not all when they died no one it didn't make the papers Emmett Till did but many of these others didn't it wasn't known it was tragic in their families right but the world at large did not take note and they are buried in some cases in unmarked graves and in some cases in ways that they can never be identified. So I want to show you what we discovered when we went down to Terrell County, to Dawson, Georgia, and met with the James Brazier family, the man who was killed for driving the car. You remember the story, okay? And we met with his sister, Sarah, who was with him the day that um, he, his wife, Hattie Bell, rushed, took him to the hospital, you know, from which he never returned. Uh, two of his daughters who were there the day he was beat up on the lawn by the police, okay? And they agreed to take us to the gravesite where he's buried. And we're really glad they did because we could never have found it on our own, okay? So this is his gravesite down in Dawson. And this is his headstone. I don't even think a rubbing would tell us who he is. So here's a man who is at risk <clears throat> of being lost to history, of being a cipher in history, of remaining an, in, an invisible man, okay? So what we're doing here is restoring whatever dignity they had by telling their stories, and these aren't perfect people. That doesn't matter. They have a story. Finding their story, telling their story, trying to give their story some dignity. We can't bring them back to life, but we can give their life meaning. And so that's, that's our charge for this semester. Any questions or conversations you want to have? Yes? Just a question. Maybe I missed it. Which... Ignatius Snipes, which election did he vote in, the primary or the general? Uh, Snipes voted in the uh, primary. And what about Isaiah Nelson? He voted in, um, I'm trying to remember the month, but I believe that was also the primary. Okay. I believe. We'll, we'll confirm that. Because um, that, was, that was what was most going to be an affront to the whites was people voting in the primary. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and so we're, we're covering, I mean, I think this is such a great image that I think helps to frame the work that we're doing, that the, 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 the subjects of our work in this cold case project um, are, are, have been lost to history, and we have the opportunity to recover them. And I think it was 
very powerful to meet the Brazier family, right? Um, you know, who showed us this, you know, Brazier's grave and his headstone that was, that's being weathered away and, and he'll be lost, right, to most of us very soon. And I, so I think it'll be interesting for us to think about um, how to recover Isaiah Nixon, right, from, and, and how to, to um, and how to tell his story um, and how to maybe hold some of the people if not literally, but figuratively or historically to account for their actions against Nixon, right? Um, and I think it'll be a, a, a really interesting opportunity for us to, for us as, as writers, as researchers, to consider our obligations to a, a much broader community, right, than, it, than is typically asked of students at university, right? Generally, you're writing for your faculty, um, but I think here we're asking you to write, I think, to a much broader audience, right? And I think that is, uh, presents a kind of really wonderful opportunity for you to kind of bring to bear um, your diverse interests, diverse skill sets, right? To recovering these stories and kind of recap, you know, and, and, and um, doing the work of recovery and remembering that I think that, that so desperately needs to happen. Okay. I might also add that since I've been making this presentation and for a while, even out, you know, in college campuses and other places, and did a TEDx talk on this, and have now had three people did it at the Center for Ethics to the board down there, a group there that I think is on their board, and I've had three people come forward wanting to help the family replace that headstone. Questions, concerns? All right. Look for emails from us tomorrow and Friday, and then we'll get going uh, full tilt when we reconvene here next week, uh, same time, same place. All right? All right. Thank you. Thank you. Join us every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. 